Our first readings are a selection of verses from Revelation 2 and 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but are dead. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches.
And our second reading is taken from Revelation 4, 1 to 11. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature, with a face like like a human face, and the fourth living creature, like a flying eagle. And the fourth and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. If you were with us last week for the first of our new series on the book of Revelation, you will remember that we saw how the original context for the book was firmly rooted in the seven churches named and addressed in the first three chapters. Whilst they were mentioned in last week's reading, this week we get to sample the letters written to each church in a little bit more detail. Now, you may have noticed, particularly if you were following in your pew Bibles, that we didn't read the guts of each letter, just the beginning and the end. Really, each letter could do with a sermon in its own right. And uh, often when preachers decide to preach through the book of Revelation, they do a series of seven sermons, one on each of the seven letters, and then call it quits. Well, we're kind of skating over them a little bit this week in order to get into the guts of the vision that follows. But there are some key things we can take away from even a brief overview of the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 that might help us to understand what John, the author of Revelation, was trying to say about the nature of being a church living under the Roman Empire. Take another look at this map, which I showed us briefly last week. Thank you very much. I did that. Uh, The order in which John lists the seven churches is Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And in the order he lists them, this transcribes a kind of clockwise circular route 
beginning with the church that is closest to the island of Patmos where John is imprisoned. And this provides us with a clue as to how the book of Revelation would have been initially distributed. There's often a tendency when dealing with a book as complex, uh, with as complex an interpretive history as Revelation, to forget that it started with real people in real circumstances addressing real pastoral needs. But the map on the screen of the locations of Patmos and the seven churches, I think, helps ground uh, the text in its original context. It's a piece of pastoral writing originating with John, whoever John was, on Patmos, and then circulated round each of these seven churches in turn, probably with a copy being made in each city before the original manuscript from John then continued on to its next location. In a culture where literacy was far from universal, the initial encounter that most people would have had with Revelation would have been through public readings of it either in the context of worship, as we were doing just now when Liz and I read some of it to us, or through uh, smaller midweek meetings. And this gives us a big clue as to the nature of the text. It's a drama. It's designed to be performed, not read. And I often think that those of us who just read the book of Revelation are missing something. Much the same way as, you know, when I was at school from doing my A-level English Lit, I had to read Shakespeare. And, you know, I didn't, the first time I read Coriolanus, I didn't really get it. And then I went to Stratford and I saw Charles Dance playing Coriolanus and I totally loved it and it now is my favourite Shakespeare play. Sometimes you just have to see it being performed. And in fact, chapter 1, verse 3, from last week's reading, interestingly, offers specific blessings on the one who reads the words of Revelation aloud and on those who hear it and keep it. Surely reflecting a context where the public reading of longer texts in worship was not uncommon. Now, you might complain that sometimes our Bible readings in church are too long. But can you imagine sitting through the entire book of Revelation in one sitting? I can remember uh, reading the whole thing out to myself once. I stood there in my study when I was uh, studying at the time with, with the Bible open and I just read it out loud to myself. It takes about an hour and a half. So it's about the right length for a performance piece. And interestingly, there are a number of places in the apocalypse, which seem rhetorically to require a response from the listening congregation. There's a number of places that feel like a kind of call and response. Again, implying a reading of it in public worship with people responding from time to time as they go through. And here we have to start realising that first century churches bore very little resemblance to the forms of church that have dominated Western Christianity in the 2,000 years since. In the first century, there were no Christian basilicas, there were no cathedrals, there were no parish churches, there were no chapels, there were no nice curved pews that are so comfortable to sit in on a Sunday morning, there were no dedicated buildings with a cross and a baptistry. Those... Uh, earliest churches, in fact, tended to be based in and around uh, people's private homes. 
Those who were Jewish converts to Christianity may well, may well in this period have continued attending synagogue worship on a Saturday. This is why Christian worship started happening on a Sunday, so you could go to both. And they would have attended then Christian worship meetings in people's houses on Sundays for the breaking of bread in memory of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And if a congregation grew beyond the point where it could be accommodated in one room, well, you just started an additional meeting in someone's house. And uh, here's, a, here's an interesting little drawing. The excavations of the earliest known uh, place of Christian worship are at a place called Dura Europos in Syria. And uh, this is uh, from the third century. But what you can see evidence from here is that some more wealthy church hosts were knocking rooms together to form a kind of permanent, larger place of worship. So in the picture here, you see a traditional Roman house with rooms ranged around a courtyard. And it's been modified to function as a multi-roomed church. It's got an assembly hall over to the left, it's got a teaching area, it's got a baptistry over to the right. This is certainly a step towards what becomes the basilica-based worship for the 4th century onwards that gives shape directly to the kind of thing we experience today. But in the 1st century context of the seven cities of Asia Minor that John's writing to, worship would have taken place in the home, just in someone's living room. And the churches in each city, assuming they'd grown beyond just one living room, would have been a loose affiliation of house-based congregations. And understanding this context helps us to start making sense of some of what we encounter in chapters 2 and 3. If we had read the full text of each letter, we would have found qu quite a lot about false teaching in there. Um, if you want some homework, it's worth going away and reading the seven letters to get a sense of the difficulties they were facing. And rather than one large meeting with... Uh, everyone present and an authorised person standing at the front and presenting a half-hour sermon or whatever. What existed in that period were a number of smaller congregations dotted through the city, uh, each with its own leadership, a mix of Jewish converts to Christianity and Gentiles who were being brought into those churches. And of course the congregation hosts, the people who owned the houses where the meetings took place, would have had quite a lot of control over the congregation, not least they would have been at liberty to say who could and could not come in through the front door of their houses. So therefore, you end up with people who are rich enough and wealthy enough to own a house that's large enough to host a congregation being the person with the most control in the congregation. And as we all know, wealth and wisdom don't always go hand in hand together. It's entirely feasible to reconstruct a situation where one or more of the congregations within a network of congregations in any given city could become a breeding ground for alternative teaching, such as John seems to be concerned about in his letters. It's a bit like, in a modern context, one of your house groups going a bit rogue. And so the picture starts to emerge of small, often beleaguered congregations struggling to live out their faith in the midst of an environment that's forever pulling them away from the call to faithful Christian discipleship. So to this end, the seven letters refer to congregations facing, facing difficulties uh, with people who have once attended having fallen away or lost their faith. 
And John certainly also seems to envisage the possibility of persecution. And he repeatedly calls those who are still attending, those who still remain in the congregations of his churches, to faithful endurance in the face of adversity and discouragement. However, there is another side to John's engagement with his congregations in the seven letters. And this is the often repeated tone of rebuke and the call to repentance. We got it in one of them, didn't we? You know, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you're, you're neither hot nor cold. You're just lukewarm. But if you read all the way through, you get more of that. And whilst on the one hand, John definitely seems to want to encourage his congregations to endure through difficulty. On the other hand, he also wants to ensure that they take seriously the effect of any compromise. So to this end, on several occasions, he calls them to repentance. And the description he gives of his churches is often bleak. At the Laodicean church, there's absolutely no praise whatsoever for that congregation. I mean, it would be a bit like somebody standing up here on a Sunday morning and just spending the whole time telling the church how awful it was. I would never do that. This is a wonderful church. We're very lucky. But, I mean, goodness, can you imagine getting a letter like that from your pastor? It's just a description of how far they've fallen. And then a call to repentance. And yet, it is from this very earthly context, with all of its troubles and difficulties, that John invites his audience, which in the first instance were those in the seven churches, to pass with him rhetorically through the open door into heaven at the beginning of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. Rhetorically, we journey with him as we read this through, or as we hear it being read, into the throne room of God. And John's hope is that those who make that journey with him will start to gain heaven's perspective on their earthly situation. All of the visions that follow from chapter 4, 5, 6, and so on, right the way up to 22 are bound into the context of the seven letters. The visions from chapter 4 onwards are there to provide an alternative worldview that John wants those in the seven churches named in chapters 2 and 3 to learn to inhabit. So instead of living as citizens of the satanic empire of Rome, they are invited to start living as citizens of the new Jerusalem. And so on our journey through Revelation we find ourselves entering with John through the open door into the heavenly throne room. John tells his readers he sees an open door in heaven, that he hears again the voice like a trumpet, inviting him to come into heaven and see what must take place. And then he's caught up in the spirit and confronted with the throne of God, which interestingly is occupied not only by God, but also by Jesus. There is a very high Christology in Revelation. It's one of the earliest texts we have that holds Jesus up as being co-equal with God. Those of us who have inherited the doctrine of the Trinity are going, well, of course Jesus and the Spirit and the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We know that. The Trinity hadn't been thought of at the point Revelation is written. This is one of the earliest texts that puts Jesus on the same level as God. It's really, really fascinating. The description of an ascent into heaven needs to be read in the context of the ancient genre of apocalyptic. If we just 
take it at face value, you see, and think that, you know, John is mysteriously entering into heaven, either literally or in a dream, we're really missing the point. You may remember from last week that I said John was using a literary genre that his readers would have been familiar with, a bit like uh, the genre of science fiction is for us today. Well, if I said that I was going to tell you a story, and I began a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Those of you who know what I'm doing would know that I'm about to tell you a fictional story which just happens to be set in another place and another time. You wouldn't think I'd really been to a galaxy far, far away and a long time ago. You'd know it's a literary device to signal how you should hear what's coming. And for anyone who's missing the reference, the phrase, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, is the opening line of the Star Wars film, the original Star Wars film. Well, there are plenty of other examples of Jewish apocalyptic material where a visionary author begins their story with a description of a trip into the heavenly realms. Here's just a few examples which you've probably never heard before to show you what I mean. Uh, this is from a book called One Enoch. And behold, I saw the clouds, and they were calling me in a vision, and the fogs were calling me, and the course of the stars and the lightnings were rushing me and causing me to desire, and in the vision the winds were causing me to fly and rushing me high up into heaven. Sounds quite like the beginning of Revelation, doesn't it? Here's another one, the apocalypse of Abraham. And I was still reciting the song, the mouth of the fire which was on the firmament was rising up on high, and as the fire rose up, soaring to the highest point, I saw under the fire a throne of fire. Sounds quite like the opening of the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Here's another one that you probably have come across before, 2 Corinthians. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to speak. They were doing this stuff loads. There's loads of stories just like this. And so we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 4 with John employing the literary device of going up into heaven. And we're going to stay up there in heaven with him now until the very end of the book, before he returns us down to earth and asks us what we've learned. And I think John's hope is that his readers will have learned to see their world differently, having spent some time looking at it from heaven. So, uh, do you recognise what's on the screen there? Yeah, it's here, isn't it? I'm sure most of us have spent time on Google Maps satellite view looking at places we think we know and discovering how different they can look from above. And then the next time you walk around the place that you thought you knew, you find you can see it differently because now you know what's on the other side of that wall or behind that fence or in the person's garden because you've seen it from above. Do you see on the bottom left there, there's a very inviting swimming pool. You might not have known there's a beautiful swimming pool there. I know, because I swim there three times a week. Uh, but yeah, there's a beautiful outdoor swimming pool just around the corner. Who knew? You need to see it from above sometimes to learn these things. This is what John is intending for the book of Revelation. Once his readers and hearers have seen the earth from heaven's perspective, they'll never live in it in quite the same way again. Because now they can see behind and beyond 
to things that were previously hidden and invisible. One of the ways John sheds light on the world of his congregations is to fill his description of heaven with a sometimes bewildering array of characters. There's absolutely loads of them. I mean, if you can imagine the dramatis personae for the book of Revelation, it's quite long. I decided to do one just for our reading this morning. So here we are. These are the characters we meet in just chapters two to four. The seven angels of the seven churches, the congregations of the seven churches, God on the throne, Jesus also on the throne, the seven spirits of God, which are the seven stars and the seven flaming torches before the throne, the voice that speaks like a trumpet, the 24 elders dressed in white with golden crowns and a throne each, and the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind each with six wings and faces like an iron ox, a human and an eagle. And so it will carry on. Chapter after chapter, a constant barrage of new characters. It's no wonder people find Revelation confusing sometimes. Have you ever been to see a play where you realise that there are considerably less actors than there are characters in the play? You get this a lot with more minor characters in Shakespearean plays. And what happens is that each actor plays more than one part. So you see somebody playing a part at the beginning, in the first act, and then they wander off stage, never to be seen again. But actually what they do is a quick costume change, and the same actor comes back on a few minutes later, maybe in the second act, playing a completely different character. Well, I think that an understanding of Revelation as a dramatic text designed to be performed enables us to see it in much the same way. It has loads of characters but a much more limited set of actors. I'm going to suggest that there are only a handful of actors throughout the whole book. They just keep doing costume changes and acting different parts. In fact, I think there are only four basic actors in the book of Revelation. There's the good guys, there's the bad guys, there's the church, and there's everybody else. The good guys are Jesus, God, and the Spirit with their various angels, and they get a bit interchangeable. And they're kind of the underlying source of good and love in the world. The bad guys are Satan and his various minions. There's loads of them. Uh, and they're the underlying force of evil in the world. And then the church are all those who've taken an active decision to follow Jesus. They've had their sins forgiven, and they've been freed from their enslavement to the forces of evil. So this is where John is inviting his original readers and hearers to see themselves in the text. And then there's everyone else, all the other humans who aren't yet Christians. And they're still prey to the deceptions of the bad guys. And that, in a nutshell, is it. All the other characters are just these four basic actors with different costumes on. So, sometimes Jesus might appear in the drama as a disembodied voice, or as one like a son of man, or as the one writing the seven letters, or as the lion of the tribe of Judah, or as the lamb that's been slain, or as the child who rules the nations with a rod of iron, or as the rider on the white horse. But it's always Jesus. He just keeps changing costume. And he always does roughly the same thing, whatever costume he's wearing. Sometimes the people of God 
you know, the faithful ones, the, the, the people in the churches. Sometimes they might appear in the drama as the saints, as the servants of God, or as seven golden lampstands, or as 24 elders, or as 144,000 people, or as a great multitude no one can count, or as two witnesses, or as a temple in Jerusalem, or as a pregnant woman, or as a list of names in a book of life, or as martyrs under the altar, or as the new Jerusalem, a city, or as the bride of the Lamb. But it's always the church just doing a quick costume change and coming on looking a bit different. And they always do roughly the same thing, whatever costume they're wearing. Sometimes the bad guys might appear in the drama as Satan or the devil or as a great red dragon, or as riders on horses, or as angels damaging the environment, or as Wormwood, or Abaddon, or as a horde of locusts, or as three foul spirits like frogs, I kid you not, or as the ancient city of Babylon, or as a great prostitute, or as a beast from a bottomless pit, or as a scarlet beast from a sea, or as another beast from the earth, or as a false prophet. But it's always the underlying force of evil, just changing costume. And it always does roughly the same thing, whatever costume it's wearing. You get the idea. And what John wants his readers, those in the seven churches of the seven cities, to recognise is that they have a simple choice. They either follow Jesus and bear faithful testimony to him, or they find themselves complicit in the evil of the world. They're either citizens of the New Jerusalem or they're citizens of Babylon. They're either seduced by the great prostitute or they are the faithful bride of Christ. They're either enslaved to the forces of death and guilt or they are freed from their sins to new life in Christ. And so it goes on. This is the perspective on the church that John wants his readers to grasp. The church is not some earthly social club for mutual encouragement and doing good deeds. It's an outpost of the inbreaking kingdom of heaven, bearing faithful witness unto death, if necessary, to the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And here we find ourselves back at the letters to the seven churches. And I wonder if you noticed something as we read them earlier. Each letter is not addressed to the church itself, but to the angel of the church. What is going on here? Well, in John's vision of one like a son of man, he describes seven stars held in the figure's right hand. These are identified as being the angels of the seven churches. And each of the seven letters to the churches begins, as we heard, to the angel of the church in, followed by the name of the relevant city. This initial image of seven stars as seven angels draws on the description from the book of Daniel of the wise shining like the brightness of the sky and of those who lead others into righteousness as being like the stars forever and ever. This representational role of stars as metaphors for groups of the righteous is then echoed in John's description of the angels of the churches as stars shining their light in a world of spiritual darkness. You're a church. You are a star. You shine the light of Christ to a dark world. And you are held within the right hand of Christ, held securely for eternity. 
The situation facing the seven churches may have been one of darkness and oppression, but when seen from heaven's perspective, their light shines and they are safe within the hand of Christ. Slightly more complex is the relationship between the angels of the seven churches and the seven congregations themselves. The theologian Walter Wink has an interesting suggestion here, which is that the angel of each church is a spiritual personification of the totality of that congregation. This is not simply a dramatic personification, rather it is a coalescing of the spiritual identity of the congregation into a single entity. He says, angel and people are the inner and outer aspects of the same reality. The one cannot exist without the other. In this way, when the letters are addressed to the angels, they are simultaneously addressed to the congregations. And Walter Wink provocatively suggests that all Christian communities exist in this way, on both an earthly and a spiritual plane. And that therefore it is appropriate to speak of and to the angel of any congregation. He says, the angel gathers up into a single whole all the aspirations and grudges, hopes and vendettas, fidelity and unfaithfulness of any given community of believers and lays it all before God for judgment, correction and healing. And as we conclude this morning, looking at heaven's perspective on the church, my challenge is whether we can gain heaven's perspective on Bloomsbury. Can we come to understand and relate to the angel of our church? What is our distinctive nature and character that makes us different from the church at Ephesus or Sardis or Philadelphia or King's Cross or Waterloo? Because if we can get to know our angel, we come to know and understand ourselves and all that shapes us. Over the next few months, there's going to be an invitation to engage in a process of vision setting for this congregation. You might find it helpful to think of it as a process of getting to know our angel. To put it another way, can we gain heaven's perspective on what it means to be the Church of Christ in this place at this time? As we come to pray for our world and ourselves, I'm going to use a response from the Lord's Prayer. One of the ways of looking at the book of Revelation is as an extended meditation on the Lord's Prayer. So when I say, your kingdom come, your will be done, will you respond on earth as in heaven? Let us pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Great God of small beginnings and hidden revolutions, we bring before you now the needs of our world and the concerns of our hearts. We pray for those countries where peace and justice are threatened and diminished, where those who would seek to live the values of your dawning kingdom are persecuted, and where violence and fear control hearts and minds of citizens and subjects. We recommit ourselves to the ideal that in the name of Christ it does not have to be this way. 
And so we pray for those small and subversive voices who dare to speak your alternative into being. We pray for those seeking peace between unreconciled peoples, for those who stand up for values of justice and equality, for those who live out in their lives the conviction that all are created equal. We pray especially for Gaza and for Israel and for Syria. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. We pray for those countries where economic circumstances are leading to inequality and instability, where the rich and powerful are acting in self-interest, while the poor and vulnerable are required once again to make the sacrifices. We recommit ourselves to the ideal that in the name of Christ it does not have to be this way. And so we pray for those small and subversive voices who dare to speak your alternative into being. We pray for those who are advocating the alternative economics of the kingdom of God. For those who promote the kingdom values of equality and care for the disadvantaged. We pray for microfinance initiatives, for credit unions, for cooperatives and for friendly societies. We pray also for those who cannot afford to house themselves and for those whose houses have been destroyed. We pray especially for India and Bangladesh in the wake of the recent cyclone. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. We pray for those who lead our own country, for politicians and community leaders, especially those who have just been re-elected. May values of truth and honesty triumph and not be lost to the values of spin and self-interest. We pray for those seeking to see our cities transformed, for street pastors walking the risky paths of our night streets. We pray for those who champion restorative justice in the face of the hard logic of retribution and punishment. We pray for the Westminster Welcomes Refugees Group that we are part of here at Bloomsbury, looking to bring a family from Syria this summer. We pray for London citizens with all the work they're doing, seeking to bring transformation to our streets and houses and businesses across London. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And we pray for our church. May we be delivered from self-deception. May we be resistant to the insidious mythologies of status and success. And instead, may we become the dissident disciples who live by the alternative stories spoken in the name of Christ in the face of those false truths that appear so self-evident. May we have the imagination to hold lightly to our certainties. And may we be ready to creatively lay aside our fear of change as we find ways of welcoming those unwelcomed by many. 
We pray especially for the 223 network, who will be meeting here in a couple of weeks' time again. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. And we pray finally for ourselves. May we become those with the imagination to see the world differently. May we become those whose sense of our own value has been transformed. May we become those who are no longer paralysed by the scale of the problems before us. May we be no longer diminished by our sense of our own smallness. May our lives be transformed by the kingdom taking root in and through us. May we become those who take our place and play our part in the transformation and salvation of the world. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Amen.